0: What is the most memorable sound you have ever heard? When I was 14 years old, my family went over to another family's house for dinner. These were very dear friends of ours. And this family at the time, they had three children. And after dinner, it was time for their youngest child, who's about seven years old, to go to bed for the night. Well this this young boy this little seven year old boy he had been expressing concern and worry that there were monsters under his bed. He, remember those days right he was legitimately scared and and this had been going on for weeks him expressing concern that there were monsters under his bed well that particular night while the seven year old was brushing his teeth and getting himself ready for bed, his dad snuck into his bedroom and hid under his son's bed. (laughs) Then after his mom kissed him goodnight and left the room, there in the darkness of the room, the dad reached out his hand from under the bed and grabbed his son's leg. (laughs) You want to talk about memorable sounds? <laughs> I'll never forget that young boy's scream. Nor will I forget the robust, the robust laughter of his father, which followed. And, and since that time, we have, we have joked with the family that their son will need therapy for the rest of his life, and he probably will. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I find that story both, both terrible Terrible and hilarious at the same time. (laughs) Because let's be honest, it's a pretty clever prank, is it not? So so in that sense, it's hilarious. Yet I think we all find it terrible as well, because I think all of us on some level, we can relate to that seven-year-old little boy's fear. I think all of us at some point in our life have been fearful that there were some monsters under our bed. I mean, think back to when you were a kid. Did you ever worry that something was scary under your bed or maybe in your closet? And this this is arguably a universal fear that all children experience. And this is this was the inspiration for one of Bill Watterson, the, the author of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strips, of of one of the books that he penned and illustrated, something under the bed is drooling, right? He wrote comics about Calvin dreading the monsters under his bed because it's an experience every child can relate to. In fact, perhaps now that you are a parent, you might have a child of your own or maybe a grandchild of your own who's concerned that something similar is scary under his or her bed. Now, while I would not, please hear me, I would not encourage you to do what my friend's father did to him, (laughs) I want to tell you this morning that your child's fear about a monster under his bed, his or her bed, is not unreasonable. You know why? Because, as the Apostle Paul is about to tell us in our passage this morning, there is a monster under the fabric of the cosmos. You see, our children know, they intuitively know that they are living in a universe in which something has gone awry. And you know what? They're right. Please hear me, friend. You are living in an enchanted world. You are living in a haunted world. You are living in a world haunted by demonic powers. Demonic powers who are actively waging war against you. So here's the million-dollar question. What should we do about it? Better stated, how should Christians live their lives in light of this frightening reality? Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. This morning, our study of Ephesians comes one step closer to its conclusion. (laughs) In Ephesians 6.10, the Apostle Paul signals that he's bringing his letter in for a landing. And I want to suggest that he does so in a very brilliant and powerful way. In fact, uh, to get the most out of Paul's teaching, we're actually going to spend several weeks in these final 24 verses of Ephesians. Because in these verses, please hear me, Paul reminds us that the entire interim period between the Lord's two comings, that entire period in which we now live, it is characterized by spiritual conflict. This is to say the peace which God has made through the cross of Christ is experienced only in the midst of a relentless struggle against evil. So how should we live in light of this reality? Well, look there with me in your Bibles at Ephesians 6. That's page 979 in that paperback Bible in your aisle. And let's learn together how Christians ought to live their lives amidst the spiritual reality. Follow along as I read Chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Paul writes these important words. He writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. You don't have to to say it out loud, but what comes to mind... When you think about the great warriors of history, or better stated, who comes to mind when you think about the great warriors of history? When I think of warriors who have won impressive battles, I think of people like Alexander the Great, Spartacus, Napoleon, people maybe like Genghis Khan, and, and, and as many of you know, typically one of these mighty warriors would go in and conquer a nation. He, w- he would win the battle. Then after the territory had been won, his followers would then come in and occupy the land, the place he had just exercised victory. But you know what? The the warrior's followers would not enter unarmed. And you know why they would not enter unarmed? They would not enter unarmed because although the victory had been won, they still needed to stand firm against the attacks of the defeated inhabitants. Faith, please notice that the Apostle Paul repeats the command to stand firm four times in the ten verses I just read. Did you notice that? He says it in verse 11. He says it twice in verse 13. And he then states it again in verse 14. And you know why he tells us to stand firm? He tells us to stand firm because when it comes to the ultimate battle of history... Our enemy has already been defeated by our King, Jesus Christ. Amen? So you know what that means? It means our call isn't to win a battle. No, Jesus has already done that. No, our call as followers of the King, as those who belong to King Jesus, as those who follow Him in His victory, our call is to stand firm firm listen to what Paul writes about Jesus in Colossians two thirteen. he writes this and he says and you who were dead in your trespasses trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands This he set aside, nailing to the cross. And we say, amen and amen. Jesus accomplished everything needed for us to be saved on the cross. And then Paul writes this, referring to Jesus, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know who those rulers and authorities are that Jesus disarmed? The very ones we just read around, read about in Ephesians six twelve. Indeed, consider what Paul has taught us thus far in Ephesians. Do you remember what he said about Christ in chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-one? Oh, I went the wrong way. Paul writes this, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and listened very carefully and seated him at his right hand in where? The heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And, and Paul, just to make sure we know that he is, the, Jesus high above everything else. He then adds, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So tell me, where is Jesus seated in the heavenly places? Far above. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Listen to me, Jesus not only defeated and disarmed these rulers, but he's also seated in a position of authority over them. But now listen to what Paul writes just a few verses later about us. This is, I mean, all the Bible is good, but this is incredible. When he writes, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And notice and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in where? The heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, so do you see, in our discussion of spiritual warfare, we must let the Bible direct our thoughts, not our imaginations. For what do these passages clearly teach? They clearly teach that when it comes to spiritual warfare in this domain of the heavenly places, we, those who have been chosen by God in Christ, we are seated with our victorious Lord over the cosmic powers of this present darkness. So you know what that means. As I stated, it means we are not called to perform the victory. Christ has already done that. Christ is the one who has forgiven us of our sins through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Christ has done all the work for our salvation. He disarmed the rulers and powers, and we sit in authority over them with Christ. Christ. So then what's our role? Well, Paul makes it clear, does he not? And it's simply this. We could say this. Our role is to stand firm in the Lord's strength. This, I want to suggest, is the main exhortation, the main point of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Christians are to stand firm in the Lord's strength. In his excellent commentary on Ephesians, Peter O'Brien correctly observes that the imperative stand is the chief admonition of this section. And as Paul makes clear there in verse 10, we are to stand firm, not in our own strength, but in the Lord's. Now that sounds really nice, doesn't it? (laughs) Doesn't it? Stand firm in the Lord's strength. Sounds nice. It preaches. Trust me, it preaches. But what does it mean? I mean, seriously, what does it practically mean to stand in the Lord's strength? Better stated, how do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? I mean, consider what Paul is asking us to do. He is asking us to be strong in the strength of another. Now, if we've been reading Ephesians carefully, which we have, we will have noticed that the mighty strength of the Lord, the power of the Lord has been a major theme of this book, has it not? I mean, consider what the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1. Did he not pray that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe in him? In verses one, or verses 18 through 19 of chapter 1. We just looked at it, but look at it again. Look at what Paul says. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. The same words. Same words Paul uses in chapter 6, verse 10. Strengthen the Lord. Strengthen His might. Then consider what we learn in Ephesians chapter 2. You know what Paul does in chapter 2? He prays that we would know the measure power and greatness of His might towards us. But then in chapter 2, you know what Paul does? Paul articulates the potency of that great power towards us. I mean, remember the contrast Paul presented? Consider this again, Christian, what the power of God has done in your life. Consider once you were dead in sin, now you're alive with Christ. You were once children of wrath, now you're the recipients of mercy. You were once doomed for destruction, now you're God's workmanship. You were once following Satan, now you're seated with Christ. And you were once walking in sin, now you're walking in good deeds. What power God has done and worked in us. Amen? Now, here at the conclusion of Ephesians, get this. Paul shows us how we can stand in that power. That is, he shows us how we can be strengthened in the Lord's power to resist the attacks of evil. Praise that we would know it, shows how it's been done in Christ towards us. Now he's going to practically show us how, how we can be strengthened by it. And there are actually, there are three actions believers must take if we're going to stand firm in the Lord. However, this morning, we're just going to look at the first one. You're welcome. And that is this. To stand firm in the Lord, we first must be aware of our adversary. Notice again verses 10 through 12. Paul writes this. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's referring to, to humans, to human beings. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the heavenly places we just looked at as we surveyed the book of Ephesians thus far. We need to be aware of our adversary. As I was studying for this, I was reminded of the story of two young boys who were sitting in a Sunday school class, and before the class got started, one of them looked over the other and says, hey, tell me, what do you think of all this devil stuff? He says, do you believe in the devil? And the boy replied, nah. He's like, the devil is just like Santa. He's dead. (laughs) Maybe my delivery wasn't as good as I was hoping to be. But let me ask you, What do you think of the devil? What do you think about him? Do you think the devil is real? If so, do you think he is passive or active in attacking Christians? John Stott makes this helpful comment. He writes this. He says, the devil's schemes take many forms, but he is at his craftiest when he succeeds in persuading people that he does not exist. You know, it is, it is not uncommon for many Christians to think that um, they are too insignificant to warrant the devil's attention. I know I used to think this, and while I... Sincerely appreciate the humility of that statement. I would suggest, though, that such thinking actually makes us more vulnerable to his schemes. That is, such thinking places us exactly where the devil wants us. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones captured it best when he, when he writes this. He says, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. So faith, if if we're going to stand firm in the Lord's strength, then the first thing we must do is be aware of our adversary, the devil. And not just him, because what does Paul say? Him and these demonic forces of evil. As, As I was reading this week, I came across one commentator I think, was spot on when he encouraged that that we should heed well what Paul teaches here because he, he says this, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for the armor of God. And he says, worse still, we should go out to the battle unarmed with no weapons but our own puny strength and be quickly defeated. So notice, Paul highlights several important truths about our spiritual enemies. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that they are supernatural. That is, they're not flesh and blood, meaning human beings, but cosmic powers. We see this in verse 12 when he says, "...what we wrestle against, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness." this is really important when when engaged with with people who are opposed to us and the christian faith we have to realize our struggle isn't really with them it's with these cosmic powers now now to be sure these spiritual powers do exert their influence through human agents i mean The great evils and perversities we see celebrated and promoted by humans in our culture are demonic. From abortion to transgender ideology to the celebration of homosexuality, these demonic activities, and yes, I'm using my words carefully, are evidences of this spiritual battle. There is an evil one who is, pun intended, hell-bent on the death and destruction of God's good creation. And he exerts his influence through human agents. As several commentators have pointed out, when Paul wrote this letter, Ephesus, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, Ephesus was a hotbed of occult interests, as Acts 19 makes very clear. So so think about this. He's writing this letter, and the church in Ephesus... They're, they were already convinced of Satan's reality. Yet Paul strongly underlined the power of the opposition that faced them and it's the same power that faces us. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we believe it? But then second, we learn that these forces of evil, they have tactics. Paul tells us to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's a scheme? Well, it's a strategy designed to defeat us. So, so I want you to just to consider this. It's not like Satan and demons and these demonic spiritual beings. It's not like they just they go about their day Oh, you know, I'm going to go golfing today. And then I'm going to have a lunch appointment with another demon. And then, oh, you know, along the way, I'm going, to, I'm going to bother some Christians. Or I'm going to try to get people to doubt God's goodness. No, they are actively scheming. They're coming up with strategies in their attack of God's people. Uh, Pastor and author Kent Hughes makes this helpful insight. He writes this. Speaking of Satan, he says, He has been honing his methods for millennia. His emissaries visited the church councils at Nicaea and Chalcedon. He sat in on medieval faculty meetings. He's an accomplished philosopher, theologian, and psychologist. Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master the human disciplines. And when it comes to human subversion... He is the ultimate manipulator. And, and I want to suggest that arguably one of Satan's most effective tactics is simply to get us to question God's goodness. I mean, we, when, when we survey the biblical witness... We see this out of the gate, do we not? He tries to tempt us to think that God is holding back on us. He's not good. He also, he tempts us and causes us to question God's word. I mean, think of how prevalent this is today. Not only outside the church, but inside the church, matters that Christians should not be debating. Matters where God has clearly spoken. With a hiss, they want to nuance it into the church. Satan loves to deceive us, to deceive us, and he knows what works. He's been at it for thousands of years. But then third, I want you just to notice that they fight up close, and I'm getting that from the phrase, "We wrestle." The word "rustle" is more than is more of an athletic one than a military one. I mean, think about it. I mean, when you wrestle, you're in close contact with your enemy, are you not? So I think what Paul is trying to get at is he's using this image to help us realize that this isn't warfare that takes place with drones and joysticks. The spiritual conflict, the spiritual warfare is close and intense. The battle takes place in our minds and hearts. And it couldn't be any closer and intimate than this. So, faith, we are at war. That this should make us alert, as, as Charles Spurgeon has said, when you sleep, remember you are resting on the battlefield. When you travel, suspect an ambush in every hedge. Now, to be sure, this passage does not answer all our questions about the devil and demonic forces, does it? In fact, I would suggest it's not intended to. Rather, this text is intended to raise our awareness of the serious and powerful war zone we find ourselves in. Christian, we have an adversary who takes no days off. He's working 24-7 to tempt, discourage, and entice God's people. Yet, God's Word gives us a precious promise when we choose to resist the devil. Well, as I said, we're going to spend uh, several weeks uh, in this text. The, the first thing that I just want to draw our attention to is for us to stand firm in the Lord's strength. We first need to be aware of your adversary. Paul's going to direct our attention to two more things that we can do to strengthen ourselves in the Lord for this battle. But for this morning, to close, what I want to do is, is I want to, to draw us to a text that will hopefully encourage us as we take seriously this call to resist and stand firm against the devil listen to what James writes in James chapter 4 this is arguably one of the longest and most helpful teachings in the New Testament on how we ought to think about standing firm against the devil James writes this and you know what let's say it together ready but he gives more grace therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Notice what encouragement. When, when we resist the devil, what does he do? He flees. The devil doesn't hound us and hound us and hound us. There is a precious promise here, Christian, that when you resist the devil, he takes off. But then there's, there's even greater promise. Notice, as we resist the devil and we draw near to God, what does God do to us? He draws near to us. Oh, isn't that good news? So, friend, I want to suggest to you this. If you want to resist the devil, draw near to God. As you're moving towards God, you're resisting the devil, and the devil is going to what from you? Flee. What a precious, precious promise. So this week, may we be found drawing near to our God through the reading and study of His Word and prayer, and in so doing, resisting the devil and his schemes. Amen? Let's pray.